Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Joe DeStefano. He's got his own podcast worth checking out called Stacked. He's the founder of Runga Life, and he's a holistic life coach, performance coach, and kettlebell coach as well. In this episode, we talk about his recovery from a traumatic brain injury, his childhood relating to his father, and recently becoming a father himself and has a two-month-year-old son. We touch on vaccines, kettlebells, and the importance of vitamin D. And it's a great chat and hopefully the first of more to come with Joe. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks. All right. So Joe, thanks for making the time and coming on to chat with me. I've uh, been following your work for a little while now. I think I found you first through Ben and then learned more through Paul. So it's uh, cool to get us down and, and ask you some questions. Yeah, man. No, Ryan, it's great to be here and I appreciate you making the time and being patient with me. I know I've already stolen a lot of your time here, getting <laughs> the audio set up and missing the first appointment we had. So thank you for your patience. Let's uh, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, in uh, the episode where you go on Paul Check's podcast, you sh- you do share a decent amount of your sort of story and journey, but it'd be great to sort of touch back a little bit into some of that. And you talk about uh, brain injury and then sort of returning to health through um, a journey of your own. So I was hoping maybe you could share a little bit of that experience and sort of dealing with that crisis and finding your way back into some version of balance and harmony. Hell yeah, man. No, it's, um, and, and it's always such a great time speaking with Paul. He's just, I was just emailing with him five minutes ago and he's just, I can't wait to get back. It's, it's one of the things that are, you know, right now I'm in Luxembourg. We've been here for six months. And when I think about going back to California, there's a lot of things I'm excited about. Well, most of it, most of the things I'm excited about are people and, you know, people like Paul and Mm -hmm. some of our other friends. And it's actually all of the reason we're going back because we're really, you know, Europe's been pretty awesome. So it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing, uh, thing to have people in life that you can chat with and share stories and learn from. So, but, um, but yeah, you know, it was an interesting experience for me. I think, traumas and, you know, whether it's injuries or traumas, my childhood was, it was really kind of interesting, man. I mean, I, I had way more traumas than I gave myself credit for when I was a mm-hmm. kid, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of small accidents, little concussions and knocked my teeth out a couple of times and all this stuff when I was a kid. So I was just crazy. <laughs> and then I had this really horrific accident, which, um, you know, something fell on me and fractured my skull and knocked me out and won't get too graphic left me in a pool of blood and you know it's it was a big thing and um i bounced around hospitals trying to you know they were trying to every time they thought they like you know had the right docs it was like we figured something else out and you know the mri shows this and it was like the clock was ticking and a head injury is just like really crazy mm-hmm. and 
you know, one of the interesting things about the, um, the experience, I think, is when the, as a parent now, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, when I look back, cause anytime there's a trauma and let's assume it's an injury or physical trauma, there's like, there's the thing. So for me, it's like fractured skull and brain surgery and fishing chunks of my brain or my skull out of my brain and trying not to make me forget who I was and try not to mess anything up. And, and then there's like the whole emotional thing. Right. And so I think when I was, I was, you know, just a, a kid at the time. And when I look back and a lot of the healing I've done over the years has been really about the thing, but it's actually also been about the emotional ride and, and seeing that look in my parents' face, that, that worry or that disbelief or that just extreme. And I feel like when I, when I came out of this surgery and, you know, uh, it was funny, like I just couldn't wait to tell my mom that I knew my name and that I was like, okay. And like, I couldn't mm-hmm. wait to recite my phone number and like see her smile. Cause it was just, my mom didn't leave the hospital for weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there was, there was, there was a lot of that. And, um, and the real story is, you know, so the healing, one of the things about such a trauma with when you have kids is like my parents, as soon as I was like, he knows his phone number, he knows his zip code, like, you know, thank God, like, mm-hmm. like when can we go home and when can we get, like, and so my, my folks were really in a rush to kind of, um, and, and bless them and they're awesome and I love them to death, but they're really in a rush to like, he's okay. Like yeah. any get evidence to, to the normal. contrary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any evidence to the contrary, let's like, you know, not worry about. And what ended up happening was essentially, I think that in that pursuit, in my pursuit of wanting to prove that I was okay and in, in their pursuit of wanting to see me as mm-hmm. the kid that I was there was a lot of like things and warning signs over the next nine to 10 years that we didn't actually attribute to this thing. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, about 10 years later, which puts us in, you know, about 2007, it was just like, my body was just completely falling apart. And I, you know, it looked like just my posture was just awful because I had this traffic jam of information from my head because there's when you damage your brain you don't like get that back right Mm -hmm. and so you know the more cumulative stress on the system and and yeah when there's emotional stress and then there's physical stress and then there's nutritional stress it all culminates in the system which is exactly what mr check teaches us Mm-hmm. And for me, um, even today, you know, I'm healthier, I'm fitter, I'm moving better than I've probably moved since before I cracked my head. Um, but I'm very aware of my limitations. And if I get too tired, I know the symptoms and I know what I need to do to fix myself. And um, so that was that was that. But but back to your question, just about kind of bouncing back, there's reducing that cumulative stress you have to heal both sides of the coin, right? So for me, mm-hmm. it was, how do I reduce the stress on my body? And, you know, my undergrad is in conventional exercise physiology and nutrition, which, uh, it turns out isn't really that sort of <laughs> correct. So I was on this, uh, low fat and, and that's how I was raised as well. Just very food pyramid. My parents are very health conscious. Um, And so all of a sudden I actually, you know, I had basically given up. I was emotionally kind of just upset because my body was falling apart. When I kind of made the connection, I went to a bunch of docs. They said it was, you know, it was this or that. And I finally went to a doc that told me I was going to be Michael J. Fox in the next couple of years because it was in fact all related and all stemming back to my head. And 
then I found a couple of docs that believed in me and, and that was terrific, but it was actually going to Paul Check's uh, HLC level one. And it was JP Sears was actually my teacher uh, mm-hmm. back then and started eating butter and, you know, uh, started, I basically went between that and one of my neurologists who was talking about a, um, a high fat diet for, uh, head injuries, um, mm-hmm. between the Paul check thing, telling me to eat butter and, you know, kind of go on a very restricted diet. So I was eating like zucchini and cauliflower and butter and olive oil for months and months and months, like a very restricted diet. And then my other doc tell me about, uh, what now is keto. But at the time it was just like, we're just not going to eat very many carbs and we're going to kind of right. cut, have your body run on fat. And I never in a million years thought I would see that diet apply it up diet applied to, uh, fat loss and, you know, cause it was yeah. such an extreme thing. And, you know, so, but my body just every week that I avoided high carbohydrates and sugars and did a little bit of introspection, a little bit of journaling, it was just like, I was getting better and better and better and better and better. Um, and then, and then I was healing the, you know, the emotional side too, and realizing the things in my life and the, the way that I handle situations that kind of go back to me wanting to prove that I'm okay and mm-hmm. wanting to prove that I'm independent and I can do this. And, uh, and so there was, there's a lot of factors and I guess that's the, um, the short answer is anytime there's a, uh, something to heal from, you always got to keep peeling back that onion because there's more. And I'm not saying I'm yeah. perfect now, believe me. <laughs> Yeah. No, the onion is a lifelong onion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it really is. And um but it's a gift and and mm-hmm. I will say that I could honestly tell you that just about all of my teachings today I learned on my path. And so I was mm-hmm. I had been a personal trainer for 5 or 6 years prior to really diving into this stuff and trying to fix myself and you know and that was a whole other thing because I was in really good shape. I was actually the sickest fit person in the world. And, um, but I was so worried about like my biceps and, you know, looking, cause when I, I had to basically cut this exercise thing for a long time, my exercise program became walking and, and sitting in the sun and writing, you know? So it was wow. like, yeah. you know, my exercise had to go to zero because I was just pushing and this is the work in work out kind mm-hmm. of principle. Right. So it was all just working in and, um, and so as a personal trainer, it's a whole other element my body, my job was to kind of help people. And I actually was not able for the first time in my life to really like exercise hard. And I was so worried about like my own physique and what I looked like and what my clients, who's going to hire a personal trainer that they don't see in the gym and that whole thing. But, you know, shedding that was, was fantastic. But every single thing now, you know, as I kind of look back now, 12, 13 years later, just about everything that I really hold near and dear and, and, you know, the, the kind of roadblocks that I tackle first with people that I'm fortunate to work with to all the stuff I learned firsthand, man, it's, it's writing in the journal. When you wake up in the morning, it's breathing, it's controlling your, your emotions. It's diving deep. It's, it's saying, I love you. It's giving hugs. It's receiving hugs. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, I like the joke that a lot of people need, need to improve their water and, and need a couple of hugs and, and most of their issues will go away. Um, <laughs> And so I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And, you know, the last thing I'll say, and, and I'll tie a bow on this is just someone asked me once, um, you know, if there was one thing in your life that you could change, what would it be? And I was like, going through all these things like, uh, you know, I wouldn't have bought that car, or, you know, whatever it was house. Um, 
but like cracking my head open never crossed my mind. And it was after the fact right. as I was like, man, I didn't say like the cracking my skull open and spending a month in the hospital getting brain surgery that didn't like even enter my mind. So that's kind of a testament to sometimes we like to say things are good or bad in the moment. We actually have no idea if they're good or bad, right? Who knows Yeah. if it was, you know, if it was, uh, you know, if it was bad, like, you know, if it completely rerouted my kind of future, then and and put me into a position to help more people then hey it's not so bad right i'm here i know my phone number <laughs> yeah yeah well i think like even that idea of something being good or bad is so much up to us right it's like how we frame it and the opportunity we make out of it so for you to take it as this you know moment of crisis to eventually start to you know relearn you know how to how to love how to eat how to treat yourself in the, in this way then it's it's a good thing and i definitely relate to that like the things that have been almost the most challenging for me be it heartbreak or injury or just you know getting to a place of almost despair and hopelessness i needed that to sort of find the chink in the armor and the breakthrough to you know start looking deeper otherwise you just kind of stay in this sleeping unawareness and and don't grow we need that sort of spark most of the time and usually it is sort of a crisis either physically or emotionally or something yeah man you're absolutely right ryan and and i remember because when i was told you know this was i was in my early 20s and the doc that was like you're gonna be michael j fox by 30 and you know i remember he's like you know it was almost like just kind of like emotionless for him. He's like, you know, Muhammad Ali got hit in the head too many times. Michael J. Fox has bad luck, but you know, that's, that's the name of the game, the brain, you can't mess with the brain, you know? And it was, Mm -hmm. it was just like, dude, you're like ruining my life right now. And you're just kind of like going to go see your next patient. (laughs) So, um, but, um, like you said, it's like, you can, you can kind of, um, kind of wallow in the despair or the victim mindset or the hopelessness. And, and that's obviously, you know, uh, Amelia, my wife is a mindfulness instructor. So like, you know, she teaches me to allow these feelings. And I think that was an important thing. Like, no, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you're really concerned for your health and there's reason to believe that it's not what you would love it to be, then like, sure. Like you can feel bad about that and you can, you can allow those feelings and, 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 and then kind of nurture your way out of it and figure out what you're going to do about it. And I was fortunate Mm -hmm. to stumble onto a couple of docs that, believed in me and they were kind of like you know this is what you make of it it's not about showing up and i think like when you don't shed that sort of mindset attitude um Mm -hmm. really really shed it because what i did is i quote shedded it but and i showed up every day and i you know i i showed up at the office and even on days i wasn't scheduled and did the the hyperbaric or whatever i was doing and just like going for extra credit but it was checking those boxes because I thought I deserved to improve or, or be my best self. But my doc one day called me out, Dr. Peter Prococo. And he's like, dude, you like, you gotta like be here. Like you, you can walk in the door, but you gotta be here and you got to, everything you do, you got to do with a, a smile on your face or with intent. And, you know, you need to kind of really believe if you will. And he's not, I don't, yeah, I don't think he's an overly spiritual guy, but he kind of like created a spiritual awakening in me. Like, Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I got to really like Joe Dispenza this. And I don't even know if Dispenza was doing his thing at the time, but that's basically what it was. Like you got to like yeah. where you put your energy is where you put your, what is it? Where you put your attention is where you put your energy. And, mm-hmm. and so teaching me to, um, 
not only do things, but do things with the intent for the outcome that you desire mm-hmm. uh, is is kind of where I think a lot of folks fall off, especially in the gym or trying to get fit or you know, eating a different food because it's, you know, going to make you healthier. And it's like, well, you know, you can eat the the salmon or whatever it is, but like, you got to really want it. You got to like really focus on what you're doing and why don't do things. Uh, as I said to Paul the other day, like you got to do things with purpose, not on purpose. Cause we can do things on purpose, but yeah. then it actually takes energy as opposed to with purpose. And then it's more, more creating of, of energy surplus and, Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's where where folks gotta find their find their way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I and in my experience, you know, back to the sort of onion reference, it's been this sort of like unraveling and and relearning in in a sense because we're not really sort of taught and shown how to do that. So, you know, it's like only after a certain amount of steps down the path where it's like, oh, actually, like I'm gonna eat this, you know, diet because. I love myself or because I'm, you know, have this bigger dream or goal or vision and, and having that purpose. And, you know, I'm, I'm moving towards that with intention rather than just like, this is the best diet I read about and I'm going to do it to get ripped or be in good shape. But it's almost like you need to like set out with, not, not that you need to, but it feels like most people kind of are like, well, I need, I want to lose 10 pounds. And that's like the starting point, or I want to, you know, feel better, run a bit faster, whatever it is, lift a bit more weight. And then it's like, as you move along that and you sort of realize, well, this isn't really like a purpose worth living for. And then you kind of evolve that purpose and that intention. Do you find like with people you work for that they're able to just go in and, and start at sort of the deeper soul spiritual level, or it's like a progress to sort of dig into that? Oh man, no. Um, no. So, I mean, it obviously depends on the person, you know, I've got, mm-hmm. I've got, you know, people that are more, more woke than I am that just want to get strong. And I've got people that are, uh, you know, wondering why they haven't had results and they stumbled into me or my work because nothing else worked. Mm-hmm. And, and those people, it's, it's funny because it's, you know, they'll call it the woo woo or, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of like almost joke at me, but at the, at the same time, they know they're sitting in front of me for a reason, you know, so mm-hmm. it, it's a funny kind of uh, situation, but I think you're absolutely spot on. And it's not to say that um, you're not going to have to go through some some time of doing things on purpose to understand your purpose or mm. the purpose that you'll allow to guide you and it might completely change. And um, And I think that's an important kind of acceptance or uh, an important lesson that like, no, like if you want to get in shape, like, okay, like if, um, you know, uh, if, if this program gets you going and I have a lot of clients, I'll tell you this. I mean, obviously I'm pretty like particular about my exercise program and I don't just like go to a boot camp class in the park, but I have a lot of people that I tell to go find a boot camp class in the park. And I, I, I say, it's not necessary. Don't, don't think of it as your workout. Like think of it as like your community engagement, like you're seeing. And obviously with COVID it's a different story, but like, there's been a lot of times that, you know, someone will say like, Hey, like I want to go to like the Pilates center or class or whatever. And it's like, meh. like, I'm sure like, you know, some of the exercises are probably not great for you. This might be somebody with back pain or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And, but I think like the 
being a part of something, being in a class is, is like an important piece of the puzzle. So as long as you understand the need it's filling or the person that is guiding you understands the bigger picture, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, teach the Pilates class myself or, you know, recommend those exercises. But I think there's, there's pieces of the puzzle. People need to kind of go through these motions. And if we can help them kind of do that and help them to kind of get spit out the other side and realize, all right, cool. Now you don't need the class and you can do exercises that are really kind of tailored to what you need. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that aren't going to put you at risk and, uh, you know, um, but sometimes in the beginning, uh, you need to kind of, uh, I guess, optimize instead of maximize, like the best thing for you to do would be, you know, this, this, and this, but we need to optimize with what you're ready for and what you can kind mm-hmm. of take on and the environments of, of success that you need are different for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, as a coach trainer guide yourself, you know, so much of that process is being able to learn how to listen. And, you know, I imagine so much of your own healing journey has been learning how to listen to yourself, to your heart, to your body and all those things. I wonder what have been like some of the key factors to developing that skill, both for yourself and for working with people. Yeah, no. And I think it's, um, it, it's very, and I, I, it's funny cause I, I learned at a, at a very kind of young age in my career that, and, and when I first got, you know, uh, into this, um, I went through a, a course, a personal training certification course and, and they spent a lot of time on the uh, like the intake form. And when I started working with people, I was kind of like, you know, I had hedged a lot of my confidence on that intake form because everything that they had taught kind of took off from this. So like if they have this going on or they say this, and it was like, there was this whole like kind of education. And like, until I like really, really knew what I was doing, cause I was like 18 and you know, who knows what I was doing. Uh, I kind of hedged a lot of bets on that that intake form and I kind of followed it to a T for like five years, my first five years in the industry. And I just recently went back home. My family's on the East Coast. I live in California. I'm in Europe now. But And I found a stack of intake forms, like, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of people that I worked with over these first five years. And just these intake forms were just incredible. Uh, they were very detailed. It was like a five or six page intake form. And... um I realized and learned pretty quickly that all I had to do was ask the question and the people would talk and motivate themselves. And I think like it it was a kind of shift for me because as a trainer, when you're hired to do a job, you, you think like I need to do, I need to Mm -hmm. do, but you really just need to like spin the top. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think I learned that lesson pretty early on, fortunately for me, that the key is to just ask the question that's going to get this person to think. And if they don't want to share, they'll at least think about it later too. And that's the other big piece. So mm-hmm. if a client comes in and, and they started talking, I would just sit there and listen and let them go and maybe, you know, occasionally kind of poke. And I, and I also kind of watched for trends. And, you know, at first I would say like the only people that can really change are, uh, women that are going to get married in the next six months and guys that have had some kind of health awakening. Like they had like chest pain at their kid's soccer game and it like scared the hell out of them. And now they're like really ready to do this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I used to say that then I realized no, in that initial sit down, it's the people that cry or get close to crying. Right that have just this incredible change, right? They just, you can't compare it. So then I was like, 
not to be a jerk, but I was like, what do I have to do to get more people to cry Yeah. in, in that initial meeting? When I, mm-hmm. you know, before all my coaching was remote, it's really hard to do quality intakes like this when you're, you know, 3000 miles away or whatever. But when you're sitting in the room, like you and I are right now, imagine we were in person. Um, I think it's your job to listen, like you said, and just ask the tough question. And, and the more this person goes in and the more they speak, the better, because you're listening mm-hmm. and that's an important skill, but you're also allowing their flow of energy to, to kind of create and connect and wire their own thinking mm-hmm. and then you know they they believe in you and they don't know why but in reality you just open the door for them to to kind of be free and believe in themselves yeah how often do you find when you're you know offering that space and holding that space for them that it's like the first time they're really able to speak about these things and feel like they are listened to. Cause I feel like in our world, it, it's just very rare, especially for men. I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's people don't, I think the, the cool thing about it is, you know, I think when people kind of go into a, a gym environment, a gym setting, you know, they're expecting to like, you know, walk in the door and, how much is it for a, a membership or, and I haven't owned a gym in a long time, but how much is it for a membership or how much is now our personal training? And, uh, you know, right off the bat when I would just say, well, what's, what's your name? You know? So there's like a, mm-hmm. I think there's a way to, um, connect with people as people and not customers. And I think that that was an important lesson for me as well as like looking at people as, as people that we can help or the people we're going to try to nudge and find their own way. Because the other crazy thing about this was the more you take on, as opposed to like creating a scenario, this is the definition between a trainer and a coach, I guess. But the more as a coach, you can kind of nudge people and allow people to make those connections for themselves, the less work it actually is for the coach. Mm-hmm. So holding space and, and allowing is important. Mm-hmm. but it's an, it's an upfront investment for the coach that actually enables them to, uh, be a little more hands-off over time, which empowers the person. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in fitness. And we talked about, uh, purpose and, and doing things for the right reasons and being connected with your why. And, and I think that when people hedge their bets and they think like, you know, it's the, it's the workout that's getting me in shape. It's the coach, it's the trainer, it's this, it's the diet, Instead mm-hmm. of realizing it's them doing all this and it's them making the decisions, um, yeah. then it's, it's, a, it's a house of cards. But the more we can kind of empower them, and, and I'll give you a quick example. There was a guy that I, I coached for a while and he was like, just like incredibly overweight. And it was, at, it was a distance coaching client. And I, he, um, I just said like, hey, like go walk 100 meters go walk a hundred meters mm-hmm. today, hit me tomorrow. And I'll, I'll let you know your workout for tomorrow, but just like walk a hundred meters. And then he goes, okay, I really need a diet plan though. I really need a diet plan. I need that diet plan. And I said, okay, walk a hundred meters and back. And then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk tomorrow about the diet. Next day he comes in and I'm like, all right, Hey, so forget the diet, you know, do what you know, don't be an idiot, 
and walk 200 meters. And then just, we'll talk tomorrow. I'm a little busy today and, you know, let's talk tomorrow, but walk, walk the 200 and come back. Long story short, over 30 days, it went 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900,000. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he walked like a million miles on day 30, whatever it was. <laughs> and, and, um, after like five or six days, I said, okay, so now when you wake up in the morning, I want you to chug just as much water as you can put down the hatch and then don't, can I swear on this thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing was don't eat shit. So yeah. dr- drink water, don't eat shit. That's all. That's your diet plan. Right. Yeah. Week two, I think I said like, you know, okay, you're doing the water, you're doing the water every single day. Okay, great. Uh, now I want you to kind of have some kind of protein in the morning. So like whether it's eggs or you know what protein is like, eat, I don't care mm-hmm. if it's a, like a steak, but have some protein in the morning, keep doing the water. And guess what? You got to walk, you know, 1700 meters today. Um, And so over the course of the month, there was only four pieces of nutritional advice given. And it was like ridiculous, right? Drink water, don't eat (laughs) shit, start the day with protein. And then I think I said, cut like all carbs, um, maybe in the last month, last week of the month, he lost like, you know, 35 pounds that month. And here's the funny thing. Last day of the month, I say, okay, I want you to like, send me what you had to eat today or yesterday, whatever it was, three days. Guess what he had? He had woke up in the morning, had a protein shake. He had a salad with chicken on it uh, for lunch. And then for dinner, he had protein, a baked potato and like broccoli or something. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. that's the exact meal plan I would have given you. And it was, but it was him that created it. If I said, I want you to start every day with a protein shake. I want you to have a salad with chicken on it. I want you to have a, you know, piece of fish with a pile of broccoli. Like on day one, you'd be like, oh, like I hate, but it was him making the decision. I think, I think that's kind of the piece of the puzzle that's, that's important. And and now I think in my current business, my current lifestyle, my current offering to the world, um, I try to walk those same lines, but my clientele is admittedly far different than it used to be when I was just in the gym and, you know, working mm-hmm. with whether, you know, whether it was weight loss clients or whatever. Uh, now it's more longevity. And, you know, a lot of people that come to me are already in very good physical condition, but they're wondering why they're not happy or, you know, so it's, it's evolved right. a little bit, but I think mm-hmm. the lessons are still the same in terms of, um, in terms of like, how little can I give you, how little can I nudge so mm-hmm. that you make the decisions that I would otherwise tell you to make. But if I tell you to make them, they're not going to be as effective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it makes me think, of, you know, just like our general society and, you know, almost like how we are with government or education or healthcare. It's like we've generally gotten to this place where we just want to be told what it is to do, be it a diet or a workout or, or whatever, and trust that that person is, knows what's best for us. But in reality, we have the wisdom within ourselves. We already know what is a healthy choice. What is a like life dream supporting choice for ourselves for the most part, but we, you know, be it lack of awareness or just, you know, maybe some subconscious programming have a hard time like taking that responsibility a lot of the time. So I think in the way that you talked about, you know, working with that client, it's like a gentler way to help somebody believe in themselves, which is ultimately an incredible gift and tool to, unlock within somebody rather than just, you know, the, the giving them the meal plan and them feeling like, Oh, well, I need you to lose 30 pounds. Right. 
and and developing that motivation and belief in yourself is what just you know unlocks the 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 more unlimited potential we have i think absolutely my man and and when i you know the the steiner you know man will continue to invent things outside of mm-hmm. himself until he realized they're all replicate realized they're mm-hmm. all replicas of things inside of him and i'm butchering the quote but uh one 100 and i think that um I think it's, it's funny. And I think what you're referring to is kind of like a learned helplessness, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, from a young age and obviously I became a dad two months ago and already kind of looking at my son and it's like, you know, he's, he's been doing tummy time since he was, <laughs> I don't know, four days old. And, um, I think there's different opinions about that, but I trust some guys and some docs that I've talked to about it, but even I allow him to struggle pretty much every single day, just a little bit. And mm-hmm. I'm right there. And, you know, he's, he's a strong kid and he's, he's growing up and, but it's an important kind of piece of coaching slash parenting to, to allow. And I think, I think this is, someone has said that, you know, the difference between a, a, a teacher from the West and a teacher from the East is this sort of like, uh, you know, a teacher in the United States is, you know, a teacher that makes things easy to understand. Mm. And a teacher, you know, in the East is, you know, a, uh, you know, a teacher that actually, you don't even know what they're teaching you until you like <laughs> run around the oak tree 58 times, you know, so, <laughs> so yeah. like, you know, so I think like, um, we are kind of handheld too much. And that creates that learned helplessness. And I, and I also think that it, it starts at a very, 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 very young age. And I'll be completely honest with you. And Amelia is just amazing with our son. And the way that we're kind of raising him is, is um, this very respectful parenting style where mm-hmm. from literally the minute he was born, if we're going to pick him up, we ask him if we can pick him up. Mm-hmm. And people are like, just have no clue what's going on with us. Um, and you know, if we have friends come over or whatever, cause Amelia lived here in Luxembourg for many years. So she knows a lot of people here and, um, you can't just pick them up. No, you gotta, you gotta say like, hi, Leon tour, you know, can I, can I pick you up buddy? And you, yeah. you leave a pause before you pick them up. And this is just one example of the many things like this that we're doing, mm-hmm. but over time he will learn to be respected and he'll allow, you know, we'll allow space for him to uh, object or agree or or what have you and communicate. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, man, he's two months old. He completely sleeps through almost every night. Like sometimes on Instagram, I I, I kind of say like, oh, my God, I'm so tired because I have a baby. And But some of that's kind of connecting with other people. Right. And, and creating a scenario or, or doing what people expect of me. And that's a whole other conversation, yeah. but like on the, on the same token, it's, but I think it helps me relate to, to fathers and, and folks that, um, may have a more challenging child and, and mm-hmm. it helps me kind of connect with those people. But in truth and, and honesty, this, he is, and it's all Amelia. Amelia is just, just magical. And, um, he's incredible. he, almost never cries. He sleeps through the night. He, um, so I have to believe that it's in part this style that we're using with him and this, mm-hmm. um, always ensuring his needs are met, letting him struggle where we can, when we can let him, you know, put himself back to sleep. 
um, without coddling too much and, and kind of watching him grow and we'll see if it works, but so far so good. Yeah, no, I like that approach. It sounds cool. It, it awards him the opportunity to create that independence for himself, yeah. which, yeah. uh, you know, definitely could avoid that, that hopelessness idea. Um, I mean, since you, since you brought up becoming a father in the last couple of months, I'm really interested to know, um, you know, it's been a topic in my own life as it's something on the horizon and in my men's group, there's a couple guys that are talking about it. And, um, you know, it's obviously really scary and you probably can't really be prepared until you're just doing it. But Mm. I am curious to know, like, if you found any specific resources or sort of theories or philosophies leading up to having the child that sort of caused you to, you know, create this sort of approach that you've got and in other elements or aspects. Yeah. And I think, so, um, there's a book, one of the books of the many books, uh, almost every book that's ever been written on pregnancy and birth we've got. So, um, that was, you know, we, we picked up a lot and there was a lot of, a lot of books that, that had an influence and an impact. Um, but one of the interesting things was, uh, there's a book, Britta Bushnell, who's a former podcast guest of mine has a, she has a book, um, transformed by birth. And I think one of the reasons I really liked it is Britta's got a PhD or I think a PhD in mythology, mm. Greek mythology. And she's teaches people how to have empowered or natural births right so it's kind of a funny mix there but her book is like using greek mythology and you know it's a really like unique take on it but one of the big things that she teaches is that you know um there's apollo who is the uh you know like he is the the god of you know order and straight lines and um you know square boxes and everything nets to zero or adds, you know, nothing, there's no fractions. Everything is like, and then his Apollo's twin sister, um, is, uh, I think it's Artemisa or, you know, I'm screwing this up, but, um, and she is the opposite. She is mother nature. She is wind. She is, you know, the natural, the things you cannot put a net on, you know, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why birth for women is just so wild and crazy um, or such an amazing experience is because we live in this Apollonian world where everything is constructed and everything fits in a box. And then there's this experience giving birth that is like, don't try to tame it. Don't try to (laughs) add it up. You don't know how long your birth is going to be. There's truly no containing this experience. And I think that that's very liberating for people when they have an experience that's very, um, out of control, but you know, it's going the way it's supposed to go, or, you know, it'll happen Mm -hmm. to you and you don't have to really do anything. So birth and pregnancy and, and this whole thing, like it, it teaches you a lot, but I think, um, that sort of mindset is, is kind of all you need that like becoming a dad, like you're not going to figure it out. Like, you're not going to like put a box around it. You're not going to like, it doesn't matter, you know, you should journal and like, write Just so you like get your emotions out and you kind of like develop sound concepts in your head. 
but like in the moment, you know, you can't try to like do the math to see when he's going to stop crying or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can't do the, you know, and I think the biggest thing is like, you know, people ask when you have a kid, they're like, oh, like, you know, like must be so different and, you know, must like be this, but you just change. So the, the craziest part is, and you can't really be ready for it, but when you're not a father and you're thinking about being a father and you're like trying to like figure out like, all right, well, like, am I like, I got soccer on like these nights of the week and I like, you know, I got to do like, how am I going to like, like, and uh, like you just change. Figure it out. Yeah. But it's, and it's funny cause it's not even like, you don't even have to figure it out. It's like your brain it's like you become like, and I think actually it's in Berta's book, like the, the hand on the clock just changed. Right. So you just went from son to father and there's a whole different like set of rules or like your brain just makes different decisions, thinks a different way. And so I think it, it, it just happens to you. Like it's, it is what it is. Like he's here. Mm-hmm. And I, I will absolutely admit like he's two months old. And like, it's not unusual that I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my gosh, like he's actually like, there's a kid here now. Like, and it's <laughs> like, it, it takes a long time after however many years you've been with your partner that, you know, all of a sudden there's just another person here and, um, that like pinching yourself, like it's real and it's here and it's, mm-hmm. you know, I can pick them up and not without asking, but like <laughs> there's the, um, there's this incredible shift that happens and your life, depending on like the child and maybe if the child were so lucky and fortunate to like, or he's a very well-behaved kid and he doesn't have like any like crying issues or colicky issues or, or skin rashes, like all the common stuff, like cross my fingers, like I hope it stays this way, but like we've been mm-hmm. fortunate in that. And if you have a child that has some of those issues, then, you know, it's, it's obviously maybe a little bit harder, you know, it's mm-hmm. very challenging when you don't know why they're upset and, you know, it's very emotionally draining. And in the first month it's very, you know, your sleep is very erratic and, but like you change. And the last thing I'll say, Ryan, is that like, as an example, sleep mm-hmm. before being a dad, if I get less than like seven and a half hours of sleep, I am like useless, just, just can't do it. Can't hack it don't mess with my sleep. My sleep is just without it. And this is a brain thing as well. Like where we started this conversation, mm-hmm. it's just the most important piece to stay the first month with a child, you know, is the worst month of sleep in my entire adult life. And I felt like a million bucks, like mm-hmm. the energy exchange just, you know, keeps right. you going. And, you know, I think that all you need to do when you're thinking about becoming a dad is, is do some, do some work on yourself, like your meditative practice, your journaling practice, your breath work, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is that you do, just do it a lot because you're going to take a couple of months off when the baby's born. And you, right. know, you need to like, you need to get that like gas tank full to like coast you through. Yeah. Um, and, and then just have faith that you're going to do a great job and mm-hmm. you're just going to put that kid as your number one, two, three, four, and five priorities Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other stuff that you think you need, like food and a job, it's like that becomes six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> like, right. and, um, and, and making space for that and, and doing your best to stay relaxed is all I can say and, and let things happen as opposed to trying to control them. Because it's when we can, it's when we try to control too much and we don't have faith that, um, I think we, we complicate things and, um, 
take Britta's course. Britta's, we took Britta's live workshop as well. And who knows with this COVID thing, if she's going to teach in, in person anymore, but um, the, the two or three days, however many days it was, I don't know, but it was incredible. Mm-hmm. It was such an amazing experience for mom and dad. Uh, just highly recommended. Cool. Yeah. I think, I think that lesson for trying to control everything is, is pretty good in terms of universally how to approach life. You know, we really try and trick ourselves into thinking we can control these things, but I guess, uh, having a child especially teaches, teaches that and you got to surrender into it. Um, I'm curious too, you know, aside from those sort of foundational pieces like meditating and journaling leading up to the time of having the kid, if you, you know, in your emotional process really like dove into your own relationship with your father and sort of that process in terms of how you now approach the idea of being a father and the things that you sort of value in that way. Man. Uh Oh, now you're tugging. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, it was a, it was a super emotional experience. Um, so, uh, so my relationships with, you know, the men in my life, like my, my grandfather and, um, my dad, you know, were kind of, um, what they, what they were. Right. And there's like certain things from these relationships that I take to my parenting with my son. And, you know, this was something I want to make sure I do. And this is something I want to make sure I don't do. And like, there's, there's all of Mm -hmm. those things, but I think the biggest thing, and I alluded to it just a minute ago, so my dad passed away like two years before Leon was born and I had no idea just how hard that was going to be. So mm-hmm. it's hard. Like it's hard that, you know, if your dad isn't going to meet your child, right. A child that, yeah. you know, he would just adore. And, um, but that, like that, the craziest part was like that hand on the clock I told you about, like mm-hmm. when, you know, even after my dad passed away, like I was still in my heart, like somebody's son mm-hmm. because I, uh, wasn't anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. I was a husband or, you know, there's these roles that we play, but I was like a son. And when I think if I like looked in, it was like, I am like, yeah, I'm his son. And that's, and like the clock switched. And like when we were getting ready to like have the kid and it was like, all of a sudden I'm dad and I'm less son. Mm-hmm. And like, that was like, dude, majorly emotional and, um, a real, like a real, like, and obviously I'm not even over it because you like probably see in my face, just like how like crazy this is, but that is like a big, that is like a big shift. And I imagine it'll take a while. And I think like when my kid, like, like, you know, stands in the batter's box for the first time, it'll be <laughs> hard. Like, cause that's like my uh, childhood, yeah. right? My dad yeah. and, Um, so it's, um, it's a, it's a wild ride. And I think wherever we come from and, you know, everyone's different. And I think we think of our parents as like these superheroes when we're kids. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then you realize like, you know, whether it's as a kid or an older person or whenever you realize it, like you realize like, Oh my God, they're just people. Yeah. Like he thinks I'm like something really special. And, um, and I think that's a, um, a really, um, interesting experience as well. And, and I think it's a, probably the biggest theme to my parenting and, you know, everyone has their different spiritual work and beliefs and religions or practices and whatever they believe. But I really believe that this, 
the spirit that was born to us was, um, he's a very, very, and I talked about this with Paul, like just, he's a very strong spirit. And he was, he was knocking for a long time before we got pregnant. And I am, um, very aware and conscious of not getting in his way. Because mm-hmm. I, I really think he's here for a reason, and I'm fortunate that he's my son. But I will not. That's hard, right? He's two months old. It's like I will not do this. But like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, but I, I really, and it's that same infant, um, the respectful uh, infant care that we that I told you about. Mm-hmm. So like, he is his own person, and and he was his own person before he was born to us, and mm-hmm. so doing what I can to ensure that I allow him to grow and become who he's to, who he's meant to become because he's here for a reason. And, and I think that one of the biggest things as a parent, I just don't want to get in the way. I want to yeah. keep him safe and I want to make sure he uh, can make good decisions. But from a young age, he's going to be a decision maker and, you know, I want him to be in touch and not mm-hmm. get in his way and not, not, do some things that maybe I was taught in terms of how to be or what's correct or, um, and, uh, I think that's the big thing. And, and the last thing I'll say is like, you know, like our, our teachers just months before we got pregnant, we're just like, he's our, like, there's like, we had a couple like really wild experiences with this and, um, he was here long before we conceived him. And so it's, mm. um, it's going to be exciting to see who he becomes. Yeah, no, that is exciting. exciting. And I, I like that approach of just not getting in his way. Cause I feel like, yeah, just limiting the amount, like minimizing the amount that we sort of project ourselves onto kids is, is really crucial to them being able to flourish and, and really be the, their own selves as much as possible. I think that's the biggest thing when you kind of like, look at your own life, like how much of what you like or love do you like or love? So like mm-hmm. for me as an example, like, you know, when my dad, uh, passed away, like my interest in sports basically dissolved with him Wow. and, you know, whether it's Patriot, you know, we're from Boston. So like <laughs> red, red Sox, Patriots, and, you know, effective immediately, like if I missed the Pats game, it was just, uh, like, you know, Yeah. but it, it was, that was a really weird thing to realize. And it wasn't like super conscious right away, Yeah. but like, you know, it was an interesting thing that I realized like why I, it was like, it was, I was actually just, I wanted, that was how I connected with my dad is that we would mm-hmm. talk about like how Tom Brady did and you know, this, yeah. this stuff. And so it's interesting to see, like, I wonder if I, you know, I wonder if I like baseball, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's, um, it's a fun journey and, um, yeah, I still do. I hope he likes baseball cause it's just such a great sport for, <laughs> for kids. Yeah. I mean that I relate to that stuff. Even your comment about stepping into the batter's box and stuff. I have so many yeah. memories and my dad coached my baseball team and, yeah. and we still connect over sports and it's interesting. Like the few years where I really dug myself into a hole and started breaking down, I really wasn't involved in sports at all and it's been the last couple of years now where i'm like oh yeah i do like sports i think <laughs> now i'm like questioning it but like i think i like sports like there's something that brings back that childhood 
sense of play and joy that comes from it, I think. But, I think that's um, something that people just desperately, like I, the other day, like just started like drawing and mm-hmm. I just like, I think we need like, what made you tick as a kid and, you know, what would you do when you got stressed or, you know, what was your, you know, and I, you know, I can remember a whole bunch of stuff that I did. And now I'm just like consciously like, okay, so like if I, you know, I got to find someone that has a piano and that's good at playing it so I can go like, you know, listen because yeah. when I was a kid, my sister was fantastic at the piano. Mm. And whenever I was worried or I would just go sit and listen to her practice. And it was like my meditation as a five-year-old. But yeah. um, now, like, as soon as I hear piano, it's just like Zen, just mm. right. So yeah. I think, I think it's a, it's an amazingly worthwhile adventure to, to figure out what made you tick as a kid, what calmed you down, what ramped you up. And to bring that into your adult life, because I think we get, again, to Apollonian, we get, oh, this is, I'm, you know, however old I am and, you know, there's no, it'd be so, like, I can't go to the skateboard park. Like I'm <laughs> yeah, 35 and, um, you know, those types of things really do amazing things for our, for our minds. Yeah. And it's being aware enough to be like, oh, I need to go find somebody to listen to the piano or a draw, not eat a bag of chips or, you know, watch six hours of movies. Cause those are the things I feel like we learn to like use instead of those like more joyful real things that are really going to heal us as opposed to like distractions and, and like cover ups. Totally, man. I it's uh and it's tough. Like, believe me, it doesn't, like, yeah. it's like, you know, somewhat courageous to like go get a pencil and like draw a cartoon as mm-hmm. like a, however, you know, wherever and, whatever you do or whoever you are. And like, maybe you like, don't consider yourself a draw like an artist or maybe the picture sucks, mm-hmm. but like, it's like if that's, if that's you, then, you know, it's a cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause my dad's an artist. So I got sort of scared to draw from an early age. Cause I just thought it would never be as good, but it was working with Paul. He had me do a few art mm-hmm. process experiments that definitely, got me feeling much more open to that and tapping into it and and letting go of some of that self-judgment, which was definitely important. Yeah. What kind of artist is your dad? Um, He did a lot of like watercolor painting growing up and he did some children's books and commissions for magazines and like even Sports Illustrated and things like that. Mm. And then he got into more digital stuff the last few years and also like explored more painting. So yeah variety of things very cool my dad is a painter as well and oh, that's uh, funny. yeah just so many uh paintings just in his house and storage and you know so many um canvases it's just like a sea of canvases <laughs> yeah funny we have that in common yeah definitely baseball painting i'm afraid yeah. to keep chatting with you <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah it's funny i'm sure there's a few more in there yeah. Um, so I had a bit more of a practical question if you're, if you're open to discussing this, cause I saw you shared a couple posts in the last month about looking into vaccines and that's obviously a hot topic. Uh, we're going to lose uh, all the listeners, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just curious to know, um, you know, when you started thinking about that, where did you sort of look like what were sort of the, the challenges of researching it and, and, you know, with the sort of social response to it, but also just on a personal level, like trying to find like, you know, what's the best for my child. 
Mm. So it doesn't even like we can even have the conversation like whatever I determined for my child in terms of vaccinations and interventions mm. and my big mission here. Um, and it's, you know, I tread very carefully on social media, obviously, because it's so just crazy, man. It's just so crazy, politicized and mm-hmm. people feel so strongly. And, and I think there's just in the entire, like the entire thing, I think information and medical freedom are mag- massively important. So if there is information that exists about something or information that doesn't exist that should, mm-hmm. I don't think it's correct to push someone in a certain direction without the information that they would need to make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. So I don't eat food without reading the nutrition label, right? That was taught mm-hmm. to me when I was five years old, right? I don't do things that I don't understand the outcome that I'm going to get. And so in this particular area, when I, from my own personal experience, and I'm treading carefully because I don't want to offend anybody, but it's just kind mm-hmm. of like my experience, my experience, just simply asking a question, it's not really welcome, right? Yeah. But, but I think it's a rational question. Mm-hmm. And that's where I began to share because I realized, and I've probably like, let's be serious. I've probably spent a hundred hours reading studies, articles written by people that I trust, clicking through, reading the research. And so I feel that my decision in this area is probably more confident than, you know, uh, if, if my brother like wanted to meander, if my brother, as an example, wanted to to ask his doctors the same line of questioning that I wanted to ask my doctors. I had a hundred hours of research behind me. A lot of people don't. And I feel like the questions or the points raised or the requests that I made were reasonable. Just as if you make me a smoothie and I say, could I see what's in it? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that that is unreasonable, especially mm-hmm. as a as a person that does this for a living. And my experience, my personal experience was that that was not welcome. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, the mere question was very prickly, mm-hmm. right? And that I don't believe is right, right? It's become such a divided issue. Um and I understand like bits and pieces of it, but my goal is, uh, I think that we need medical freedom and freedom of information speech. So if I, you know, if, if people like me begin to share this information, I make my living through web traffic, through, um, podcasts, through sponsors, through affiliate programs. Like this is my business. Mm-hmm. If I, and vocal about a particular research study that I find interesting, I am putting those things at risk, the things mm-hmm. that I feed my family. And I don't think that's right. Like I, how come I can put a study about, uh, you know, sugar being bad mm-hmm. and it doesn't affect. And if I'm concerned about a particular ingredient in a medication, 
I don't understand why my livelihood is threatened and people will, you know, leave my page um, that they agree with 99% of everything I've ever put out in five years being on the Instagram. Mm -hmm. That just is like, I, that pull that, like, I don't like when, how health has become so politicized. And, um, and the last thing I'll say is that these, I don't like these dehumanizing terms. Um, you know, so in other words, when you create, when you label someone or a group of people, a particular group as something, I just, I just don't think that's mature and I I don't Mm -hmm. think it's accurate. So in other words, if you and I were, um, uh, just like at a restaurant or something and, uh, and I, and you said like, Hey, do you want to like get a bottle of wine for the table? And I was like, you know, not, not, can I see if, can I see the wine? Maybe it'll like, I just want to like, think about it. Or Mm -hmm. if I said, you know what? No, not tonight. How about next time? Like, that's not met with the same, like you don't put me into a container that, that paints the picture that I am not only against this wine tonight, but I am against everything that's ever existed in the wine industry. (laughs) And I think, I think that's my issue is that like, if I, if my doctor says not that this is like, I don't even remember the last time I was on any antibiotics or anything. I probably, I don't even know if I've ever been on antibiotics, but like if I went to the doctor and I was feeling sick and they said like, Hey, we're going to put you on like a Z pack. And I said like, Hey, can I like for the next like five days, I know like this is like miserable for me and I'm the one that's sick. I just, I, I do know that that is going to decimate my, my gut and I take a hundred dollars a month of probiotics. Like I don't run like, <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. could I try like some, like, you know, X, Y, and Z. And if it's, and like just put it off. And if I'm not better in a couple of days, I'll come back. I'll get the Z pack. The doctor doesn't put me into a camp of like dehumanized human beings that are in this subculture of people that are now talked about in the media and they're anti-antibiotics and they're creating all this like they're endangering other, Mm -hmm. other people. And like, it's just, this drama is, is in my opinion, madness. And the last thing I'll say, and the reason I started to share on this is first of all, the first thing that kind of, and I hope this isn't too long winded, but the first thing that kind of like really glipped my radar was a friend of mine that, um, received a letter, um, to take down content from his website, like a kind of a, like a cease and desist. Mm because it was harping on the benefits of vitamin D relating to the immune system. And so when I saw just the suppression of very important information, mm-hmm. um, I'm big on vitamin D. It's like, I just, I just posted about it today. I just think that vitamin D is just this crazy thing to me because the, de- the rate of deficiency in the United States is like just silly because it actually is the thing you can just take a pill, right? It's like, yeah. you know, it's like the one thing you literally just have to take a pill. And uh, you can get your vitamin D in range and optimize all of these pathways, these, the immune system, your risk of, of cardiovascular problems, your risk of brain problems, your risk of like vi- vi- everything gets better with vitamin D. Um, and so when I began to see the suppression of information, especially if they mentioned, you know, immune system, et cetera, mm-hmm. with vitamin D, but that's longstanding. Like there's more studies on that than all cause mortality is very clearly associated with vitamin D. Like you are deficient in vitamin D, you are at an increased risk for all cause mortality and we don't have to put our finger on it. We just know deficient people 
die more often than people that are optimized, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're beginning to see, and when we look at something like New Zealand, they have a, they have a 5% of their population is vitamin D deficient. They are not faced with the same challenges as the United States are right now, where, where we are 70% deficient. And in yeah. fact, the vitamin D, the correlations between vitamin D, uh, and who knows, maybe it's coincidence, right? But it's worth like coincidences are important to like, just like look at and be like, oh, that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. When we look at uh, African-Americans in the United States, they have almost 80% deficiency of vitamin D. When we look at Hispanics in the United States, it's 60%. When we look at uh, um, Caucasians, it's a little bit lower. And on the average, it's about 70% deficient. But Mm. when we look at the um, the populations that are most affected by the current pandemic, Mm -hmm. it, it, it correlates pretty close. So I think like minimally, there's this inexpensive thing that we could do and if who knows if it's correct or not but the correlations there so we might as well educate people and say like hey we're seeing this funny thing and since it's very easy to change and extremely inexpensive we think it's worth like everyone doing that but that's not what we're doing yeah. and so when i started to see this sort of stuff it was it was kind of i was kind of like just feeling compelled to say something and and as back to your question about vaccines and hopefully no one's left the podcast but um <laughs> The alarming thing to me, and I just became a dad two months ago, um, the rate of sudden infant death has dropped significantly during the quarantine period. Again, interesting. Parents mm-hmm. are home with their kids. Maybe that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Parents are paying more attention. Um, but it just so happens that... Uh, a record number of kids have also missed their health checkups. Right. So I think that's an interesting correlation. Whether or not it is factual or true, it's just important that people know, like there's two data points right now. There's fewer kids going to their docs for their two-month checkup. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 800 kids per month below average not dying of sudden infant death right and last sudden infant death not that it's easy to do because your doctor from my experience will not offer the information but if you are if you're whatever committed you can find the nutrition facts Mm -hmm. for some of the things that they give children and sudden infant death syndrome is listed as a side effect a potential unlikely mm-hmm. side effect. So we have a situation where we can't prove anything, but I think information is important mm-hmm. to get out there so that people can make their own decision. And if I say like, I don't know if it's going to rain or not, but you might want to bring a raincoat. No one yeah. gets upset. No one yeah. gets upset. But if I say, you know, uh, sudden infant death is listed as a side effect during a period of time where, fewer kids received the medication, there was less sudden infant death. Like you don't have to bring your raincoat if you don't want to, but like yeah. it's your decision. If you want to like acknowledge this correlation, just like vitamin D in New Zealand and, and mm-hmm. deficiencies in the United States. So my issue is suppression of information, um, lack of education, a seemingly, cause I've talked to, um, I don't know how deep you want me to go in this, but I've talked to a lot of doctors, pediatricians, mm-hmm. And 
when I have this conversation with them very, very, very frequently, um, the conversation ends up going about their reputation. So if you have a pediatrician and you question this, this something on the schedule, mm-hmm. they're very resistant to your questioning and they want you to just do it. And if you dig deeper and ask the question in a calm, mature way, the doctor will say, well, I can't have, from my experience, I'm not speaking for mm-hmm. every pediatrician on the planet, they'll, they'll end up getting to the point where they're like, I can't have kids in here that are not sticking to the schedule. So listeners are welcome to draw their own conclusions, but it seems to me that it's, it's not doctor-patient, it's patient system missionary or like police. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so kind of energetically, this whole experience didn't really feel good. And that's why I decided to start posting with it. But granted, like I immediately just like felt not good about it. I, well, here's the thing. I felt terrific about it in, in, rea- <laughs> in reality because I had so many messages that said, holy smokes, like, thank you so much. Like I'm now going to do my research. Mm-hmm. I am going to now read the nutrition label. Yeah. I am going to make an empowered and informed decision as opposed to just going on the merry-go-round because you're on the merry-go-round. You're becoming a parent. All right. This is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, can I say one more thing about a yeah, particular yeah. injection? So one of the other, uh, one of the other chunks of hours that I invested in this was in regards to a, a, a injection. I don't even know if it's technically a vaccine um, called Rogam. Now, this is when mom and dad have two different blood types, which Amelia and I do. There's a situation where if the, if the baby has uh, dad's blood type, and I hope I don't mess this up because it's actually been a little while since I did this. So if the baby has a different blood type than mom, everything will go smoothly. But there's a likelihood if there is blood mixing. So if um, during, the, during the birth, mom, the placenta rips too early off the, the wall of the uterus or the, uh, if mom like were at six months pregnant to get in some kind of accident and, and be, there was a trauma and there was some kind of blood mixing between baby and mom, mm-hmm. mom could create antibodies to a particular blood type. Baby will be fine. Baby number two might not be fine. Mm. So if mom develops these antibodies and then you have another baby in three to four or five years, you don't realize mom created it and then you can miscarry at a, at a much higher rate. Um, now, I didn't know anything about this when mm-hmm. we were um, going through this. And um, the interesting thing is, is it's extremely easy to test the baby's blood type, especially in the first trimester. It gets a little complicated after that. And it was the frustration of, of, of mine in this particular area was we weren't told about this situation mm-hmm. and they just wanted Amelia to get the shot, but it didn't make sense to me because I don't, we not know the baby's blood type. So if the baby has mom's blood, like the shot is unnecessary mm-hmm. and the shot, like the shot has like things that like, of course, if there's a scenario, that's why I don't call me an anti anything. If there is a scenario where we have to 
put a couple of ingredients or a nutrition label that I wouldn't personally love Emilia to have. But mm-hmm. if it if it's saving our future baby, like of course, like no one's going to not make that decision. Like that's yeah. just like cut and dry. But the fact that there was a situation where wait a minute, isn't there like a you know a chance that they have the same blood? In which case, this would be completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And in this particular area, we did a really robust um, genetic test in the first trimester or whatever. And um, long story short is the, that particular test formerly had baby's blood type as a, as a marker. And they were testing all kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Testing everything from Down syndrome to, to whatever you can. But there was a situation where like, this is a, you know, not an inexpensive test. And we're obviously, we're not going through insurance. We did like the whole like natural thing. It wasn't until the second trimester when the sh- we were going to get the shot that this came up. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, we did the whole thing in the first trimester. Like, it's got to be on there. I mean, we they did the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was removed from the test. So like a year or so before we got it, that test became a standalone and it's more expensive than the huge panel just to get. So like, I was kind of like, whoa, that's like kind of weird. And why would you like, if you're mm-hmm. testing 50 things. Why wouldn't you test 51 things? Mm-hmm. Why would you take one of them and put it over here? Um, and so the the standard thing is you get this shot, Rogam, halfway through the pregnancy. You get it again at birth. And then you like go home and like you have a baby now. The problem is we said we we said no um halfway through the pregnancy because we decided the risk was worth the risk was worth it because we're protect I'm protective. Amelia doesn't have a license to drive. Like I'm not, I, I don't think like a, a trauma is that's really the risk that you take on is like, if you get in a car accident or something and there's blood mixing. And I said, we'll, we'll take this on. And you know, if there was ever any trauma or like a reason we thought there was blood mixing, we'll just get the shot then hmm. let's not get it like prophylactically. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the baby was born and, and one second after the baby was born, I said, let's test his blood, uh, from the placenta. Did you and ask sure. him? Did yeah, you ask this him? Was like, yeah, I was like, hey, bro, I'm going to check your <laughs> check your blood. But guess what? Baby's born. We test the blood from the placenta. Same blood type. Would have been completely unnecessary, but she would have received that shot twice. Mm-hmm. So like, these are the things where like, if you're not informed, like when I said that we were considering foregoing that, it was like I was made to feel like a monster. Mm-hmm. and just an irresponsible, crazy lunatic. Um, and it turned out like it, we decided to take on a little bit of a quote risk that wasn't really a risk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we did it right. We tested what we needed, what we were trying to remedy mm-hmm. and discovered that it wasn't necessary. And if, if it would have been a situation where the blood types are different, guess what we would have done? Yeah. Got the injection. Yeah. Who wouldn't do you want to like put your next kid at like extreme danger of miscarriage or do you want to like not have like a little bit of aluminum or something? And you're like, it's just like, you know, okay. Like just, yeah, no, I want to have a baby. I want to have a, another kid. And so there's this, like, I think there's just a need for, uh, information, freedom of choice, uh, medical freedom. I just think is what's on my mind now because it's being threatened. You know, it's already Mm -hmm. in schools and, you know, there's certain requirements that, Um, I just think that parents need to make choices and, you know, if, if you want this one, but not that one, it it needs to be more a la carte and and then I'm going to tie a bow on this and and finish up. Here's my other thing is that 
kids need to be better taken care of. We need to make sure our kids are not vitamin D deficient. We need to make sure our kids Mm -hmm. are having high quality diets because there is no immunity that you can put into a kid with a shot that he shouldn't be able to at least come close to on his own. So in other words, the shot cannot be a replacement for health and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And that is the illusion that a lot of people are under that it is better and I think that's what I really, you know, am setting out to kind of educate parents around. It's just the importance of feeding kids natural foods, whole mm-hmm. foods. And if you decide to like do this little extra boost, that's on you. It's like your decision. Do the research mm-hmm. and make the call. But kids need to eat better food. And, and I think that that is just um, needs to be paramount. And it's not right now, which is why I chose to make some comments about it. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Definitely appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, Be careful. Is, you it, ask those questions. I know. Well, you know, it's, it's a long-winded been, response. Yeah. I've been starting to like look into it myself. So I'm very interested to learn from people who have also spent time, you know, researching it. And it's too bad that it is so polarizing because as with pretty much everything in life, it's not black and white. Like there's a ton of middle ground and you know, some things are more necessary and some things could be tested more. And, you know, there's just, there's so much in there that it's crazy Mm -hmm. how much there's a reaction to it and how much it has been like conditioned to be treated that way from, you know, very high up to walking down the street. Like people that don't have any thoughts or concerns about health and wellness and being a healthy person in any other part of their life are just like explosively reactive when it comes to something like that, which is kind of bizarre. And, you know, I think like you were talking about, you got to take responsibility to educate yourself and make the best choice that you can. That's what we have to do as individuals as well. And I feel like that's been a huge trend in the wellness industry is, you know, people empowering themselves. And, you know, that's a, maybe a bigger question for sort of, especially America, you know, how much do the powers that be want people to be responsible and empowered and educated? Maybe not so much, but, um, yeah, you know, I think that it's important that we at least have the opportunity to take that responsibility and get that information. And, uh, hopefully people will start doing that more and more because the more we hand over that power, obviously in this specific topic, the more we hand over that power, the harder it is to take that responsibility back. It seems like spot on brother. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that's the important thing. And I think it be, it bridges off this burned helplessness piece that, um, we talked about earlier. And I think the United States has, you know, hundreds of millions of people. It's like, that's a lot of people to corral. Mm-hmm. Um, people are easier to control, I guess, if they're all kind of fighting with each other as opposed to uniting. Right. But Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wild and crazy, uh, time. And I just think that people need to become, I think people, people need to get in the habit of, like you said, just educating themselves and becoming empowered. And, you know, last night there was a, um, seven hour hearing. I don't know if you heard about this, but seven hour hearing with the CEO of Google, Mm. CEO, uh, Amazon, Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, um, and uh, Apple, like I watched five and a half hours of this seven hour hearing. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to talk about like the control or the situation with Amazon, it's, it's funny how 
like you said, people are so explosive, but someone that might be explosive watched the five minute recap on the news. Mm -hmm. I watched almost the entire seven hour ordeal. Mm -hmm. And it's funny when, um, that is even a, a conversation in terms of like if someone's doing independent thought versus borrowed thought mm-hmm. and the borrowed thought is more explosive than the independent thing. It's like that mm-hmm. kind of situation that's been created is just really, it makes this really challenging to like just live as an independent thinker because you don't mm-hmm. think you're doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. But when you're put in boxes or named things or put on lists or, you know, um, Facebook, it's funny, like my Facebook page, like Facebook sent all my, the people that follow me a message that said I shared false information. Mm. Just like who like decides that? Yeah. Cause like, I might think it's true that it looks warm out and someone might say, no, it's, it doesn't look very warm out. So truth (laughs) is it depends where you're standing and what your background is and what truths you want to believe in. But I think that one person that works for a social media company deciding what's true and what's false is seems a little, I don't get to see who that person is, their background. And if they watched five and a half hours or five minutes of the review, I don't get to know that. So I just think that there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. Um, but, but I think that the more, to your point, the more people empower themselves, take on this responsibility, realize Mm -hmm. that, um, asking questions is the most important thing we have as human beings, mm-hmm. it's the most important power that we have really is asking the questions. Mm-hmm. And if you ask a question and you don't get not even an answer, but your the question is denied, like then that's like, then that's a question you should like keep digging and look somewhere else for an answer because mm-hmm. it's at the point where we're not allowed to ask questions. That's uh, I don't think that's a healthy society for anybody. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. So I have a question then, a little bit lighter, but uh, on vitamin D, it's not something I've looked at too much, but is that something that you can get enough from sunlight or do you, should you really be taking a supplement? So here's the thing I like to say, you know, you know, let's, let's put this in dietary terms. People love to talk about balance. I have a balanced diet. I drink beer with my buddies on Saturday night. I go out with my wife on Friday night. I like cake sometimes, but it's all balance. Balance is fantastic. The blue zones balance things, right? The blue zones live the longest. They eat stuff, whatever. But if you're in a hole, it's not the time to use balance. So if you walk in the door and you say, I want to lose 40 pounds, Mm -hmm. 15 kilos, whatever the number is, and wherever you live in the world, it's not the time to use balance to create substantial change. When you create change, you may use balance. Mm -hmm. And as long as things don't go the other way, it is your prerogative. It is your call. It is your decision as to what balance even is, as if you could quantify it. But if you want to make a change, it's not time to use balance. Now, I would love if the sun uh, could provide enough vitamin D to get people out of a hole, but we're at a point where we're 70% deficient in the United States. Europe, I think, is not far behind. And we're seeing better health outcomes, more resistance to to seasonal allergies and, and illnesses in areas of the world that coincidentally have less deficiency. I've been doing this with, with folks for a long time, and, and I do not believe it is possible to take somebody from deficient 
too optimized with the sun, even if they were out every morning naked in their backyard. It is too hard to move the needle. I've seen people take the RDA for vitamin D used to be 400 IU. It is now, I believe, 600. I have watched people take 5,000 for a year and not move the needle in a substantial enough way to get themselves truly optimized. And that's another thing that is up for negotiation. We can say optimize is between 50 and 100. And uh, most people are under 30. 70% of people are under 30. Um, I say 70, 75 is, is where I want folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people say, as long as you're under a hundred, some people say 50 is the place to be, but we can agree that between 50 and hundred is where we want. And I don't know many people, if you're not taking a vitamin D supplement, there are some people that have less predisposition to uh, vitamin D deficiency, but they are rare from my experience. Most mm-hmm. people are somewhat deficient or on the line and they're, if they're 40 or something, they're, they're at a great level, but we should probably get it up a little bit. Um, so I, I think people need to take a supplement for vitamin D, but the important thing is vitamin D is a very synergistic molecule. So uh, hormone, really. Um, it requires vitamin K. It requires vitamin A. These are The body is not just this like, you know, put the quarter in and walk away. Mm-hmm. So vitamin D supplementation now needs to be part of a, a nutrient-rich diet and usually needs to be taken with vitamin K too and should always be in the context of a diet that's providing adequate vitamin A ideally in the form of retinol, which is what you can get from, uh, beef liver is probably the best source. Uh, 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 there's some cod liver oil. You can get a decent amount of vitamin A, uh, and grass fed butter is another source that's got a little bit less, but, Mm -hmm. um, those other nutrients are absolutely vital. And if you take vitamin D alone without those synergistic nutrients, you're at a higher likelihood of getting the vitamin D level up, but not being optimized or having some kind of negative side effect like, Um, I've seen people have like weird, like rashes and things like that. Mm. Um, most people need about, in my opinion, from my experience, anecdotally, uh, between four and 5,000 IU of vitamin D per day. Um, but if somebody is severely deficient, uh, 10,000 per day for a couple of weeks or a month to get that level up, and then you can go to 5,000. And then if you're chilling and you're at a level of 70 and you want to start using the sun and going for naked walks, like fantastic. Mm-hmm. But if it drops again, like, yeah, make the, make the call. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. So, um, is that something you would have to get a blood test to find out where yeah. your vitamin D is at? Super easy. Um, 25 OH vitamin D, uh, super easy test. And just about any doctor should be willing to test it. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise you can use like inside tracker or, any of these, uh, online things where they'll send a phlebotomist to your house and jab you and take your blood three days later, it's online. So, yeah. um, but I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Highly recommend testing your vitamin D, especially right now. And anybody that's considering getting pregnant, make sure your vitamin D is optimized. Cool. Okay. So, and, and just generally speaking to with the people you've had experience with, if you're at say 25 and you, you know, optimize it and take the supplementation you need to get it up to that 70, 75 mark. What's the sort of changes somebody might expect to experience? I mean, it's, that's the thing about vitamin D. It's not like you're gonna, you might, maybe you have a little more energy. It's one of these things, right? Like Mm -hmm. if we look at in, in reverse, um, somebody let's look at gluten. One of the reasons why gluten was so hard to, uh, kind of pinpoint as the cause of 
everything from mood disorders to leaky gut to inflammation to allergies to all that. Cause like everyone's got a different problem. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, everyone that's gluten intolerant, unless they're completely celiac, um, might have a different outcome, a headache, a migraine, a, a rash of eczema. Um, it's so varied that some of these hormones, again, the body is a very complex system of systems. So mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think if somebody is, uh, vitamin D severely deficient and they get their level up, they're going to feel like, you know, they just had a, like, you know, whatever coffee and an NAD injection or something. I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to change, but they might find that they have a few less allergies. Mm-hmm. They might find they don't get that sickness, that, that, that cough every fall or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. these little things are, these little like data glyphs, those are the things to look for that often we don't look for. Like one day we just say, mm-hmm. I don't really get sick anymore. Right. Right. And so I think that there's, there are these certain things that just make sense. Vitamin D deficiency is very clearly correlated with all cause mortality. So get your level up and walk away and just know you like checked that box because it's the only right. thing that there actually is a box to check. Everything else is kind of more obscure and we can argue is should LDL really be that low or that high or, you know, right. so everything else is kind of a, but we know having a vitamin D level below 30, which 70% of people do is not good. Mm-hmm. We can all agree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like a foundational immune like piece to have. Exactly. Plays a lot of roles in the body. I've got a podcast with Dr. Chris Shade where we dive into it. Um, but yeah, it's it's just this thing. It it's involved mm-hmm. in a lot of the inner workings of the human body. And not surprisingly, because we depending on what you believe, we evolved in the sun and mm-hmm. uh our bodies are pretty damn good at synthesizing vitamin D when we're naked in the savanna and mm-hmm. getting a broad range of different uh wavelengths of light and eating healthy food and not wearing sunblock and sunglasses and having the sun hit us through glass. Like these are all things that just interfere with the body's ability to actually synthesize vitamin D effectively. Right. And, um, that's basically the only experience a lot of us have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, disconnection is a definitely a big piece with a lot of dis-ease across the board. So I had a, I've got a list of a bunch more questions for you, but probably, a little bit limited on time now. Um, so I'm just going to hit you with another question that's completely unrelated, but something we- you share a lot about. And okay. it's just, uh, you know, kettlebells. You obviously love kettlebells. Mm-hmm. Why are they so great? And why why do you uh, share that so much? And yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, so I dig kettlebells. I um, And this goes back, right? So my own personal experience is, uh, you know, I've got a brain injury and some movement problems. And, uh, when I would, you know, back in whenever it was early, early on in CrossFit, I went to CrossFit level one and, you know, like everyone else kind of drank the Kool-Aid and, uh, it didn't do my body good. Mm -hmm. So it was the, how fit can I get between injuries game that so many people play and barbells, for me, you know, my left and right sides will never be perfectly symmetrical and fantastic. And so barbells just don't work. And it took me a long time for me to like accept that and just stop deadlifting and stop front squatting and stop clean and jerking and snatching with barbells. And I still deadlift sometimes. It's fun. But, um, 
oh, using that as the 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 mm-hmm. primary stimulus just was like injury fit, injured fit, injured fit, feeling like crap, not walking in straight lines, but fit like this whole game. And as I started to get more and more into kettlebells personally, and my clients would still be doing all the other stuff, I just started to realize that it was actually one of my aha moments where I didn't touch a barbell for two years. All I did was kettlebells. I jumped in the squat rack once with a buddy and set a PR on my front squat, having not touched a barbell in two years. And I said, when I used to front squat every Monday, I didn't get Mm. this strong. But kettlebells just strengthen you from the inside out. And I think that's the reason I love them is the, um, so that's what brought me into kettlebells. But Mm -hmm. the thing about kettlebells is they're very like sort of self-limiting. If you don't respect the bell, and when I teach kettlebells, I talk about how every kettlebell used to be a hundred pounds, right? Back old school, like you're a strong man. You walk in the door, you say, Hey, I want to be a strong man. Let's pretend I'm a strong man. And you walk in my door and you say, I want to be a strong man too. I give you a hundred pound kettlebell and I say, come back when you can do a get up. I'm your coach, right? We talked yeah. about this. Um, you respect the hell out of that bell, man. Like you do one wrong thing with that kettlebell. It will teach you real quick what proper technique is. And, and you have to kind of walk around the bell and like talk nicely to it and, and only mm-hmm. do things that the bell can teach you to do better, but don't try to teach the bell anything. And this is why fitness is so silly when people, you know, um, the boot camp that maybe satisfies a requirement for community and happiness and smiles and faces when you're swinging like a four pound kettlebell, like you are violating the number one rule of kettlebells, which is don't talk about kettlebells. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> which is, which is, uh, uh, the kettlebell is the teacher. You are the student. So don't try to teach mm. the, the iron anything. And if you appreciate kettlebells in that way, they can teach you a lot about human movement, what proper posture is, what, what strength really is, where it comes from. And, you know, all you have to do is have someone like press a kettlebell and then they'll say like, oh, that was kind of heavy. And then I say, okay, now squeeze your quads, your butt and, and a water bottle in your opposite hand and do the same press all at the same time. And all of a sudden it's like, whew, well, it's way lighter. See, the body's one piece. So that it teaches you that the body is one piece, which is mm. uh, a lesson that we all need to learn. Mm. And, is a, and is a lesson you really learn when you're trying to relearn how to walk in a straight line and go through some of yeah. the stuff that I did, right? So um, that's kind of why I think it's this as Dan John. Dan John's an amazing coach and a guy that I look up to and I've taken a lot from. Um, you know, he calls it a fat-burning athlete builder. And uh, that's why they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, we'll probably have to leave it there for today. But maybe we'll, we'll have, have to do to... episode two. Uh, yeah. I keep looking down at my battery. I'm like, ah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, this has been just a ton of fun, my man. And um, I hope your listeners uh, got something out of it. And I'd be happy to do episode two at some point if yeah. if you've still got your questions. And yeah, um, it was a pleasure just sharing this time with you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. All right. Take care, Ryan. Thanks. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode, whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it'd be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.